Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hi, everyone. Dan Aminder here. On behalf of all of us at Cardiners, we are thrilled to bring you our Decipher the Guidelines series for the 2022 AHA, ACC, HFSA Guideline for the Management of Heart Failure. Get ready for short and bite-sized, high-impact, clinical vignette-based questions designed to highlight core concepts based on cutting-edge evidence that are relevant to your practice. The cases we use are hypothetical and for educational purposes only. This series was developed by Cardiners and created in collaboration with the American Heart Association and the Heart Failure Society of America. It was created by 30 trainees spanning college students through advanced fellowship with mentorship from Dr. Anu Lala, Dr. Robert Menz, and Dr. Nancy Schweitzer. We thank Dr. Judy Bizanson and Dr. Elliot Antman for their guidance. So join us as we get to learn about the guidelines and beyond from 16 leading faculty experts. With that said, it's time to get nerdy. The following question refers to section 7.8 of the 2022 AHA ACC HFSA guidelines for the management of heart failure. The question is asked by St. George's University medical student and cardio nerds intern, Chelsea Amotwinebo, answered first by Mayo Clinic Cardiology Fellow and Cardio Nerds Academy Chief, Dr. Theodore Donison, and then by expert faculty, Dr. Michelle Kittleson. Dr. Kittleson is Director of Education in Heart Failure and Transplantation. Director of Heart Failure Research and Professor of Medicine at the Schmidt Institute, Cedar Sinai in Los Angeles, California. She is deputy editor of the Journal of Heart and Lung Transplantation, on guideline writing committees for the ACC AHA, and is co-editor in chief for the ACC Heart Failure Self-Assessment Program, as well as being on the board of directors for the HFSA. Her clinician's guide to the 2022 Heart Failure Guidelines, published in the Journal of Cardiac Failure is a must read for everyone. Dr. Kittleson, welcome back to Cardio Nerds. I am delighted to be here. Thank you so much. And with that, we'll start with a question. So the question I have is a 69-year-old man was referred to the cardiology clinic after being found to have reduced left ventricular ejection fraction and left ventricular hypertrophy. For the last several months, he has been experiencing progressively worsening fatigue and shortness of breath while getting to the second floor of, in his house. He has a history of bilateral carpal tunnel syndrome and chronic low back pain. He takes no medications. On exam, his heart rate is 82 beats per minute. Blood pressure is 86 over 60. O2 saturation is 97%, breathing ambient air, and BMI is 29. He has regular rate and rhythm with normal S1 and S2 bi-basilar pulmonary rails, and plus one pinning edema in both legs. EKG shows normal sinus rhythm with a first-degree AV delay and low voltages. Transthoracic echocardiogram shows a moderately depressed left ventricular injection fraction of 35 to 39%, severe concentric hypertrophy with a left ventricular posterior wall thickness of 1.5 centimeters and strain imaging showing globally reduced longitudinal strain with apical sparing. There is also a biatrial enlargement and a small pericardial infusion. A pharmacologic nuclear stress test did not reveal any perfusion defects. A gamma pathy panel, including SPEP and UPEP, 
serum and urine immunofixation studies and serum-free light chains are unrevealing. Its 99-technetium pyrophosphate scan was positive with grade 3 uptake. In addition to starting diuretics, what is the next most appropriate step for managing this patient? The answer choices are A, start metoprolol, succinate. B, start sucupitril, lostartan. C, perform genetic sequencing of the TTRG. Or D, form endomyocardial biopsy. So, Teo, I'm curious, what do you think the answer for this question would be? Hey, Chelsea, thank you so much for having me here to discuss this very important issue with you and with the entire podcast listener group. And thank you for the question. The correct answer is actually answer C, to perform genetic sequencing of the TTRG. The station has findings which raise suspicion for cardiac amyloidosis. There are both cardiac low voltages on EKG and echocardiogram showing marked hypertrophy with biatrial enlargement and small pericardial effusion, as well as a characteristic strain pattern, and also extracardiac features such as bilateral carpal tunnel syndrome and low back pain. All of these suggest amyloidosis. The diagnosis of cardiac amyloidosis requires a high index of suspicion and most commonly occurs due to a deposition of monoclonal immunoglobulin light chains in AL amyloid cardiomyopathy or transthyretin in ATTR amyloid cardiomyopathy. ATTR may cause cardiac amyloidosis as either a pathogenic variant or as a wild-type protein. Patients for whom there is a clinical suspicion for cardiac amyloidosis should have screening for serum and urine monoclonal light chains with serum and urine immunofixation electrophoresis and serum-free light chains. This is a class 1 level of evidence B recommendation. Immunofixation electrophoresis is preferred because serum or urine plasma electrophoresis, STEP or UPAP, are less sensitive. Together, Measurement of serum immunofixation of electrophoresis, urine immunofixation electrophoresis, and serum-free light chains is more than 99% sensitive for AL amyloidosis. Negative studies, as in our patient, essentially exclude AL amyloidosis from consideration. In patients with high clinical suspicion for cardiac amyloidosis, without evidence of serum or urine monoclonal light chains, bone scintigraphy should be performed to confirm the presence of transtheridin cardiac amyloidosis. This is a class 1 level of evidence B recommendation. As in this patient's case, the technetium pyrophosphate scan with a grade 2 out of 3 cardiac uptake in the absence of a serum or urinary monoclonal protein has a very vast specificity and a positive predictive value for ATTR amyloid cardiomyopathy. This allows for a non-invasive diagnosis of ATTR amyloid cardiomyopathy, obviating the need for an endomyocardial biopsy, and so option D is inaccurate. In patients for whom a diagnosis of transtheridin cardiac amyloidosis is made, genetic testing with TTR gene sequencing is recommended to differentiate hereditary variant from wild-type transtheridin cardiac amyloidosis. This is again a class 1 level of evidence B recommendation. Differentiating between pathogenic variants or a wild-type protein variant 
is important because confirmation of the pathogenic variant would trigger genetic counseling and potential cascade screening of family members and TTR silencer therapies, such as enotersin and patisseram. Currently, only approved for the treatment of polyneuropathy caused by ATTR pathogenic version of amyloidosis. Routine guideline-directed medical treatment for neurohormonal blockade may be poorly tolerated in patients with ATTR amyloid cardiomyopathy and ejection fraction of 40% or less. Due to restricted physiology, they may be predisposed to more hypotension with RD, ACEs, and ARBs. Similar, patients with ATTR amyloid cardiomyopathy rely on their heart rate response to preserve the cardiac output, thus beta blockers may worsen heart failure symptoms. In this case, our patient already has a borderline blood pressure without these medications. Both options A and B are false. So pay attention. The main takeaway from this question is the fact that in patients for whom a diagnosis of transthyretin cardiac amyloidosis is made, TTR gene sequencing is recommended to differentiate the pathogenic variant from the wild-type transthyretin cardiac amyloidosis. This has implications in terms of screening for family members and management options for the pathogenic variant patients. For patients who have ATTR amyloid cardiomyopathy and have an ejection fraction of 40% or less, guideline-directed medical therapy may be poorly tolerated. Thank you so much, Chelsea, again, for the opportunity to have such an interesting discussion. And I was just wondering if Dr. Kettleson might have any additional comments on what we just spoke about. Yes, thank you so much. Amyloidosis is one of my favorite things to talk about, so I love this question. When I think about amyloidosis, I think of three things. Number one, have a high index of suspicion. You're not going to find it on some test you would order routinely. You have to think about the diagnosis to make the diagnosis. So think about those patients who have heart failure symptoms in conjunction with other things like musculoskeletal orthopedic things like carpal tunnel and spinal stenosis and sometimes neuropathy. There are so seemingly disparate clinical findings come to a unifying diagnosis. Second, most important point, when you're making the diagnosis as many of the things that you memorized in medical school were not true. Number one, do an SPEP-U pep to diagnose amyloidosis. As you said, not true, not sensitive enough. You must order serum urine immunofixation electrophoresis. Myth number two, we all memorized in medical school, check a fat pad biopsy if you think there's amyloidosis. As you very well highlighted, you can make a non-invasive diagnosis of TTR amyloid if you do a technetium pyrophosphate scan in conjunction with a negative monoclonal protein screen that equals TTR amyloidosis. If you need to do a biopsy, however, a fat pad is not very sensitive. A bone marrow is not very sensitive. If you think of amyloidosis and you have a negative surrogate site like that, you have to biopsy the organ in question. There's going to be three times you're going to think about a biopsy. The first time will be if your monoclonal protein screen is positive because you can't diagnose AL amyloidosis without tissue. Number two, technetium scans are not available. Or three, your scan is equivocal, but your clinical suspicion is high. Remember, don't look at the test. Look at the patient. If the patient is screaming amyloid to you, then go on further to try to make the diagnosis. 
The other point I'm going to make is about GDMT in patients who have infiltrative restrictive cardiomyopathy. If you think about it, GDMT works in HEFREF because of the magical and mysterious neurohormonal pathways that lead to remodeling on a long-term level and also the acute hemodynamic benefit because these patients with HEFREF, you afterload reduce them and their stroke volume goes up and their cardiac output goes up and everyone is happy and feels better. Remember that patients with restrictive physiology have a fixed stroke volume because their heart's so stiff. So if you try to afterload reduce them, they will get very, very unhappy because they can't augment their stroke volume in response to the drop in SVR. They're just going to get tachycardic and hypotensive. So if when you're thinking about the blanket GDMT for HEFREF, think in amyloidosis, is it really going to help or is their pathophysiology different so it may hurt? Thanks so much for that great question. Wow, that was amazing. Thank you, Taya and Dr. Kittleson, for your thorough answers. And thank you for taking us through a detailed approach towards amyloidosis. 